Can you do that closer to the mic, please? How's that? You're gonna love it. Yeah. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the look back from Baywa RE Solar Systems. I'm Tom Miller, editor of Solar Review, and I'm joined as always by my co-host Pam Cargill of Ko Listy. Pam, how you doing? I think you did a little bit of traveling last week. Is that right? Oh, yes, I did. I was actually down in Long Beach last week at the Home Performance Coalition Conference. It was a ton of fun. What'd you do there? So I gave a talk with Peter Trost of Energy Circle on adding solar to your existing contracting business. It was great. That's funny because I interviewed Chris Williams also from Energy Circle last week. Uh, We did a short podcast about measuring your online presence and we did a spinoff article that's available now on Solar Review, but it was a good talk. Yeah. And, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because so I actually went and looked up one of the stats that you guys mentioned in that piece. It's uh, Bright Local. It's this search marketing company that does surveying every year. He actually cited the study in 2014, which said 88% of consumers read online reviews. That number is now up to 97% wow. in 2017 with 12% looking every day, and 85% of consumers trust online reviews as much as personal recommendations. That's uh, that's pretty significant. I mean, just in a couple years, it's gone from upper 80s to almost 100% is... Um, yeah, that's big. Yeah. Uh, the way he framed it for me was that people now trust online reviews as much, if not more, than a family member. But it sounds like the most recent stats you've got there are even more significant. Yeah, that's thanks for sharing that. So um, why don't we talk about today's guest? Who do we have? Ah, okay. So this week, we're talking with August Gers of Luminalt. They're a solar contractor in San Francisco. Right. And they've been in business since uh, 2004, I believe. Yes, which would make them one of the newer crops of the longer running solar contractors, if that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. And we should say that in preparing for this interview, we both went back and listened to a podcast that August gave at NABSAP earlier this year. And one of the things that jumped out to me from that was that Luminalt has a 75% referral rate, which is amazing. And they also do not have a marketing person on staff. And I'm interested to hear more from August and find out if there's a correlation there. Yeah. I I mean, honestly, given the conversation about customer acquisition in the industry, there's so much focus on managing brand and having all this work done. You know, funny thing, you remember our conversation with Jim, uh, Jim Mm -hmm. Yennel. We didn't even ask him if if he has a marketing person. But quite frankly, now that I'm thinking about it, I I don't think he has one either. (laughs) No, I don't think so. I think his team is small and a lot of the marketing comes from his blog. Yeah, it comes from him. This is actually a really important point that we're kind of zooming in on here, which is in contracting, you don't have these huge marketing teams like you would see at these other consumer facing companies. And it was really in in 2008, 2009, when a lot of these third party ownership companies came into being and had big venture budgets and needed to grow really fast that they needed to have marketing teams because they had to do that kind of big push in order to get out there. Right. So it's really interesting to me to see that the companies now that we're talking to are really reflecting trends that are more in line with what we see in contracting in general. Mm -hmm. Mm. And it reminds me of we we we, every year Baywa has a partner summit and uh, in early 20. (laughs) Thank you. In an early 2017, we had Vikram Agarwal come on and Mm -hmm. from Energy Sage and he gave a presentation. And one of the slides was 
that the top six publicly traded solar companies spent 1.5 billion on sales and marketing billion. in 2016. Billion. <laughs> August August doesn't even have a marketing person on their team anymore. I so can't even make this stuff food up. Food for thought. All right. Well, what do you think? Should we should we get to the conversation? Yes, let's get to August. But I want to do a quick plug for Solar Review, Baywa's online magazine for solar contractors. Just Google Solar Review. That's review spelled R period E period view, and you'll find us. We've got feature-length articles on how to run efficient and healthy solar businesses, videos, podcasts, and more. And please subscribe and rate this podcast on iTunes. We'd really appreciate it. Okay, that's it. Now let's get to August Gers from Luminalt. August Gers, welcome to The Look Back. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Give me a really quick summary of how you got into solar. Well, I actually had my first solar experience when I was a teenager. My dad got some solar panels from a decommissioned Arco solar plant out from the Carrizo Plains. And um, it was a huge plant that uh, had these concentrating uh, collectors that uh, actually started to damage the solar panels. And um, they were giving them away to uh, to students free of charge, or you could buy them. And I we got about 20 of the panels. And I was just so fascinated by this idea that you know all the resources for solar were were put up front. In other words, to make the, the panels, and then all you had to do was put them out in the sun, and they would just collect energy. And so I, I started to do some experiments um, when I was in high school, and I knew that I wanted to do whatever I could in the solar business. I just didn't know how to do it. And then I got my first job in 1997, working actually for now my father-in-law, doing off-grid solar around the Central Coast. Yeah, we were doing trace inverters and tracking arrays and batteries, and uh, that's how I got started. And then in uh, 2005, I moved up to the Bay Area and joined Knoll Engineering Cotter uh, at Luminol here. They had just founded the business, and um, I joined on, and um, we were doing subcontracting. In the in the early days, Luminol started off as a subcontractor, right, to, to real goods, but you pretty quickly moved away from that. Talk a little bit about what wasn't working for you guys at that time. I mean, there were two big things that weren't working. First, the customers weren't very happy by the time we actually got to the job site and started to build the, you know, the system. It had taken a long time. The, the communication was weak. So we we realized right away that, you know, something on the back end of that process between transfer from one company to the other just wasn't working very well. It was also really hard for us to make money. You know, we were doing something something in the range of a dollar twenty to a dollar thirty a watt. No matter in 2006? Worked, right. Oh my goodness. That's well, criminal. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that was, they were supplying the materials. So, okay. so we were supplying balance with the system and um, we just couldn't make any money at it. And, and so poor customer experience, not a good way to make a whole lot of money. We realized that we need to take this, the, you know, the sales process in house if we were ever going to be successful. Right. So then Luminalt just decided to, to start doing everything. And you do some very challenging installs that other companies don't want to touch. So you have a bit of a niche. Did you start out wanting to take on these challenging projects? And maybe talk about your internal capacity in the early days of Luminalt and why you chose you know that route. I mean, so it was literally, we, we would subcontract these jobs where we were, our sole business was to build the job and then pass the inspection. And I think literally what we started to do is knock on the neighbor's doors. If they wanted a referral or, you know, they wanted a new job, we would actually go out and do a little engineering visit and start to actually 
try to sell the job ourselves. And so that was the sort of simple way that we did that. And, and we, Nolan, Janine, and I had some some strengths that played off each other. Janine, who is our CEO, she was a corporate lawyer by background, so very savvy in, in, in business. And I mean, something as simple as a, what may sound as simple as a contract, you know, she really knows how to take care of properly. Noel has years of construction background, really in, in a lot of heavy construction, so knows how to deal with complex builds, you know, heavy machinery. And, and sometimes we use that and sometimes we don't. And then I'm a mechanical engineer by background. So to answer your question, I mean, we started off just taking on regular residential builds. I think mm-hmm. just by the very nature of the fact that we were located in San Francisco, we started to realize that we could do these complicated San Francisco jobs a lot better than the people that were trying to come in from outside of San Francisco. Right. And so you so, fell into it naturally. Yeah. Yeah. It just started to be, there's a natural border around San Francisco. You know, there's the Pacific Ocean on the West and Golden Gate Bridge and the Bay Bridge. And so it's, it's physically just hard to get here as well and expensive to operate in. So it was a very natural thing that just started to happen. I also, I had gone to school uh, with a friend of mine. His name is Eric and he, we brought him on pretty early as well. And so he's a mechanical engineer. So we had a pretty good amount of engineering capacity to to deal with some of these more complicated jobs. Okay, so it sounds to me like this is really working. This has really been a testament to your referral rate, which from what I've heard is somewhere up near 75%, really unheard of in the solar industry, I have to say. So is this something that you realized early on would be good to focus on, like business by referrals, or, or did you just kind of realize, oh, you know, like later on that maybe referrals were the way to go? Um, no, we knew right away. And <laughs> it, it was because, I mean, first off, none of us have any marketing strength. And I remember oh, okay. there were some other, there were some other companies operating in San Francisco at the time that had some pretty flashy marketing. And we thought, gosh, you know, we wish we had that, these nice shiny brochures and a nice clean website. But then we realized that they didn't have the capacity to, to actually construct, design and construct these properly. And um, they came and went frequently. So we we knew that referrals were kind of our one way that we could get business. It was relatively easy and straightforward. It was it was like a pleasant experience. So it just felt like this is something that we do well. We take care of our customers. We design and build the system properly. We communicate really well. You know, I read years ago. It's just oftentimes like eighty percent maybe is just about picking up the phone and listening, and and being communicative with our customers. You know, we just try to keep keep that going. When I don't did know if it, that answers your question or not. Yeah. yeah. I, well, I'm kind of curious. I, I'm, I'm assuming that, you know, in the early days, you would only have had a, f- a few referrals to, to go on. You, it's not. So how did you start nurturing those referrals? What was the process? Yeah, let me think about that here. Noel and I were out building the systems and Janine was back in the office. There was a point where she, she was still working as a corporate lawyer, but then she came on full-time to Luminol. And I think that we were there to pick up the phone. We also, there was a new incentive in San Francisco called Go Solar SF that was being launched in 2008. And we were, we knew that we were perfectly positioned to, um, you know, to, to, to get that incentive for our customers. Um, and we started a lot of grassroots stuff. So we, we had booths at their shows. And yeah, I'm trying to think, you know, what was it that, how does that snowball sort of start to build mm-hmm. from just one to two customers? And how did we actually start to have enough business? Maybe it was because you were there to pick up the phone. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it was it, it was that we were there to pick up the phone. And I guess, mm-hmm. you know, we were doing some marketing as well. 
but it was pretty grassrootsy stuff, literally showing up. Um, there's different festivals around San Francisco. We would show up for those. We did build ourselves a website. We had some brochures made up, but you know, it was all pretty small scale stuff for sure. And, and before 2008, there was a lot of construction happening um, all over the Bay Area. People were remodeling homes for the whole housing crisis. And so a lot of contractors, we would actually stop in when we would see a home being remodeled and mm. stop in and give them our card. Mm-hmm. So just a lot of that kind of small scale stuff. And it, it, it started to build up. And by doing good work and by having happy customers, you know, they refer their neighbors. And it's, it's a, I think it's, it's how business is done frequently in San Francisco. I mean, if you, if you have a friend or you know someone that's had a good experience, you, you know, you're probably more likely to go with that than to try to just hunt them down on the internet. Mm. I think it's fascinating what you just said too about seeing seeing what's happening around you in the community and seeing what the builders were doing and and going after that as a specific channel. Have you found that that's continued to pay dividends for you? I mean, yeah, we we always have to be morphing and changing and trying mm. to stay you know on top of what the market is doing and 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 trying to be really good at what we do. So we, we knew right away that we could be really good at working on these these big remodel projects. The type of projects where, you know, at that time, um, say 2008, Solar City was launching. And it, it was pretty obvious that in many you know, they may be able to beat us in price. Certainly, they were going to beat us in branding and marketing. So we had to be there to be the responsive type customer that could go out and deal with the contractor when they're ready for us right kind of on the dime. And sometimes that can, it, 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 it's very hectic. but we were able to pull that off frequently by just limiting our geography of where we worked. Hmm. We did some jobs early on far, far away from, you know, out in the foothills of the Sierras. And we realized like we need to keep our geography pretty close to home here. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's, that's a pretty big operating radius. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. How big was your team at that point? You know, looking back at our growth and, We've grown really sort of slowly and consistently is what I would say. I think probably back in 2008, 2009, we probably had maybe 10, 12 people total. We have about 35 now. So we're definitely much different. You know, we're not a a large operation by any means. But, you know, if I look back at what I used to do on a day-to-day basis then compared to what I do now, it's definitely changed a lot. Yeah. Just to close off the the referral topic, how are you handling referrals now? What's your process for for gathering those referrals? Yeah, so so one thing that we, that we did early on that I think was really helpful, and you know, continue to do so today, is that we select carefully, but we license a number of different software tools to help us stay organized and to communicate. And so we use Salesforce to manage all of our projects. And uh, we have a pretty good section, a number of fields in Salesforce that help us track where our incoming projects come from. Um, We have a referral program where we pay $250 for anyone that refers a project where we end up installing. And, And so part of the intake process when someone calls is we always ask them how they heard about us. And then we you know, we record that. Okay. So August, you are clearly a very process oriented person. I think you and I really share that in common quite a bit. And so on the more nuts and bolts sides of things, I heard in your talk that you gave at NABSEP, you know, kind of in an analysis of post-installation cases that you've been tracking for a while, you found that 60% of issues were with uh, failures 
of kind of some of the early monitoring equipment, and a lot of that was due to false positives. So how are you how are you even tracking these cases, first of all? And is this something that you've been doing all along, where you've always had a really good system for tracking post-installation issues? Or is this something that came about because you saw a specific gap in the customer experience that needed to be addressed? Oh, that's a great question. So... Yeah, Salesforce has a feature called Cases, and I I think that was a little later that we actually started to use them. We've always been big believers in recording information that we get into Salesforce. You know, we record every time we have a conversation. Um, every when did time, you start using you know, Salesforce? Uh, early 2008. Oh, wow. So you were a pretty early adopter. Yeah, yeah. Basic information is we're recording information about the about the site and about the project. And so as we're making on a project, as we're building it, we're making milestone notes and then we're we're recording dates down, say when we pass like maybe a rough inspection or a final inspection, who the inspector was. But yeah, then if someone calls in and we have a pretty simple rule with our cases, if someone calls in with a problem, we we create a case right away. And the case sort of prompts you with some basic questions. What type of problem is it? Is it that the system isn't running? Is it that there's a monitoring question? Is it that they have a question about their utility bill? That sort of thing. And then you create that sort of container, which is the case. And then as you make progress through it, you fill it in. There's always a, I guess, sort of two actions. One is you record what you just did. And then two is if there's anything else that needs to happen, you make sure that you trigger that. So you might task yourself or someone else to check a bill or check the monitoring site or to give this person a call. And so it's always recording what's happening and then making a next step and what we need to do. Mm-hmm. And then our goal is to solve the problem and then close it out. Okay, so I want to I want to call out specifically your your process there, which which I think our, our listeners should really pay attention to, which is making sure that you close the loop with the customer when things are done. That sounds to me like that that's a pretty important thing here to highlight. Yeah, I think that as we've grown and when you when you go from a small company where you're sort of doing everything yourself to, you know, more and more employees, the problem is is that if it's not a really clear closeout process that we need to we need to close the loop and, and make sure that the customer and, and everything is, is completed. And I have some other examples there too. And so that's pretty easy when it's just one or two pe- you know, people that may be dealing with it. But once you have two, three, four, five people that are dealing with it, there's almost a guarantee that someone drops the ball or doesn't realize that they were even supposed to do anything. And then a whole bunch of cases or projects just sort of sit there stagnant and don't get finished out. And I would say like the most common example of what might happen is when we have RMAs, which is return material authorizations, you know, you, you don't get the, you don't try to trigger the manufacturer for the service credits that they'll give you. So in other words, most manufacturers give some amount of money when one of their products fails under warranty, but oftentimes they have a process in place that you need to actually ask for that money. And if you don't, they don't send it to you. Mm. That's a pretty easy step to miss. And so if, if we don't do that, we just, you know, we end up not getting maybe 150 bucks or 250 bucks, depending on which, what the manufacturer is. And so we need to have a process in place where the case doesn't get closed out and it sort of prompts you to make sure that that gets solved before we, we close it out. And I'm assuming that based on what you were saying about how many people could be working on a case, it's not just one person assigned to a case. You could have multiple members of the team handling the case at the same time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, the classic example of that is the person that's 
going out and, and doing the work, more of a field-based position, and then compared to the person that's in the office that is helping with the communication. And, and we also learned early on that it's really, really hard to adequately communicate and do the work out in the field, right? Yeah. So all contractors get to this stage where you're the installer and then you're trying to talk to the customers and sell the system while you're on the roof. And, you know, it becomes a point pretty quick where you can't keep up with that. And so, you know, that's why office positions are, are vital and field positions. Oh, okay. So let's, let's talk about management then, since, since we're kind of getting into this topic. So at one point you were managing all kinds of people, like how many people? Uh, yeah, like I was, I was almost about 25 direct reports okay. to me. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. And so you've probably hired a few managers since then. How did they, how did that come about? Well, I, I mean, for a number of reasons, for, for my own quality of life and, and for functionality within our organization, I, I knew that we needed to hire basically and start to build out little departments in our company. You know, one example is the engineering department. We now have a director of engineering and we have three engineers and it's going to be one more coming on pretty soon here. And they have their own, you know, little room that they, they do the engineering from. We have two project managers and looking at probably a third right now. They also man they manage an equal portion of the projects and then they also manage the crew members. We have a warehouse manager and then we have a service department manager as well now. And then we have customer service and we have accounting and HR and and sales as well. You're okay, so now you're you're departmentalizing, you're starting to grow out of this August is wearing six hats and Janina's five and, and Noel has twelve. How did you think about this in terms of how it would affect the customer experience? In terms of affecting the customer's experience, first off, we, we have a, a list of vision and values. And so we, we want to make sure that, if anything, it makes the customer service uh, or the customer experience better. So we, you know, there's a point where I can't answer all of the calls, you know, the customers have directly and answer all of the questions that all of the people that are reporting to me have and, and deal with all that. And so certainly by having good leaders in place to to deal with that, that allows them to be more focused on the on, on strengths that they can really work on. So we have the engineering team that can really focus on making good decisions for the design based on the principles that we set out. So we know that, you know, we want to have really high performing systems and very aesthetically pleasing systems. We know that we need to keep up with our permits and we need to, you know, have enough done so that we can keep the work coming in. Actually, and one thing that, that we're really proud of that has worked well is that we have what we call our, our PA and our PM teams. We have project administrators and project managers that are partners together. And the the project managers are, are out more frequently in the field and really con you know, responsible for the construction of our systems. And they're partnered up with the project administrators that are helping with, you know, solar is a really paperwork heavy uh, construction industry. So we have interconnection paperwork, we have rebate and incentive paperwork, we have uh, warranty paperwork. Have you guys done any Title 24? Yeah, we've done some Title 24. Um, <laughs> That's I mean, crazy. Doing, yeah, I mean, we're doing storage now. So we, we're doing SGIP. I mean, we have like 50 of those projects in our queue right now. So that's oh, a, wow. and we do multi-family affordable solar housing mash. Mm -hmm. um, so there's there's a ton of paperwork, right? And and once again, to kind of go back to that that structure that I was talking about earlier, which is we know that it's hard to adequately communicate when you're out in the field. So PAs in particular, the project administrators, it's a um, office-based position primarily. And so they're here to answer emails 
and to answer phone calls. People call and email, you know, really all day long with questions. And hopefully we're ahead of them and we're, we're providing them information as we go along so they know what the status of their project is. But no matter how much of that we do, uh, people reach out to us with questions. And we want to make sure we're, we're quite responsive to those. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you a question about, about trust. And you mentioned something in the, in the NAPSA presentation about it's kind of a hiring question, but also a management question. And you said that the, the really good employees are people that are bringing solutions to the table. And to me, that, that implies a certain amount of trust that the solutions that people are bringing are in line with the company and that are, are correct, or at least on the right path. In delegating now a, a lot of a management to other people, what's that tipping point that you've found where you're comfortable trusting the solutions that people are bringing enough to let them run with, with it? Well, I mean, I, I would say for our, our managers in particular, the, the, the tipping point of trust is really front loaded. So as soon as they're promoted into that position, I'm, I'm delegating, you know, them responsibility to, you know, and this is, I think the, the whole key to delegation to, to do the, the work and then also to be able to make decisions on it. Mm -hmm. And so I basically, I, I front load that trust right off the bat. And then what we do is we, you know, we learn and we work with it. And so everyone needs to be able to have space to make mistakes and, and to get better and, and also to be able to, you know, that space to, to be able to fix their own mistakes. Mm -hmm. and, and that was something that we, we sort of learned the hard way too, like jumping in and wanting to, to solve problems right away. I, I think it sort of takes power away from the person that actually maybe made the mistake. So, you know, I, I really believe in the idea of like, look, if something happens, let's try to take responsibility for it, for whatever our part was, and let's work together as a team to solve it. So how are you how are you coming back to evaluate the choices that are made? Are are you coming back once a quarter or or once a month to do evaluations with your project managers and your, and your ops teams? Yeah, I mean we do we do evaluations every 6 months for for our field employees and then for our office based positions we do them annually. But you know, we're we're all in one office. And so there's a pretty good understanding of what's happening with projects. Mm -hmm. And I say when when anything you know, when a project goes south and there's a problem on a project, typically I'm made aware right away, especially if it's a larger problem. And if it's just a small problem, they're probably dealing with it. I, I don't need to be, you know, made aware of it. I guess my question is more related to like, how are, how are you learning how to adapt when issues come up? Like, how are you working as a team to figure out, well, okay, these, this, these solutions aren't working. We need to try something else. So I sit down weekly with our project managers and we really have a pretty open forum for discussion, but frequently it's it's about the biggest issues that we're all facing and how we're going to work together to solve them. And so if there's a work overload issue or if there's a certain crew that's not working out well together, whatever, you know, problems are happening, that's a pretty open discussion to talk about it. But also, you know, all day long, people are coming to me with with questions and um, issues to, to, to help solve. Mm -hmm. And so I think having sort of an open door policy there, you know, whether it's something like how do we how do we deal with this you know, customer where, you know, we sold them a, a 10 kilowatt system, but now we can only fit eight because of this fire walkway issue. And we really know that they want 10 kilowatts. How are we going to deal with that? And, and depending on the level of the project manager, maybe they already know how to solve it or maybe they just started and, and they don't have a, any ideas yet. And so, you know, we can sort of foster and work on that. 
Okay, so let me let me ask then. So those were a lot of kind of project related examples, and you had you have one customer example in there. In what space do you have currently for really analyzing and discussing how do we proactively improve the customer experience? Yeah, as opposed to say something goes wrong. And then you have your team get together and react and say, oh, we need to change the process because this thing happened. Do you have a forum now to proactively say, how do we make this even more awesome and more engaging and more, more, more? You know, there's certainly a lot of discussion about structure. How how do we set up our teams in a way that's effective? And I mean, we 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 certainly talk about that weekly in our leadership meeting. And then each of the leaders of, of their various teams has discussions with the people they report up to, whether it's me or Janine, to, to bring ideas and make sure that their, their workload is balanced and, and that they have the tools that they need and that they have the room they need to make decisions. In terms of like the answer to your question other ways, like whether we have any Salesforce metrics or other KPIs um, that we that we work off. I mean, we certainly have Salesforce dashboards and reports. You know, we're trying to figure out how many projects are we doing. There's all kinds of metrics that we're checking pretty frequently there. There's a lot of inner team work that's going on among the people that are the, I, I guess, the stakeholders that are actually doing the work to improve that. So if they're having a, especially like a reoccurring problem or they're foreseeing a reoccurring problem. They're they're you know trying to submit for an interconnection and they don't have the data that they need at the end of the project to submit uh, the, the paperwork properly. They just they go ahead and meet um, on their own and they they solve that. And so maybe it's updating our, one of our as built documents. So certainly I think you know a learning process for us too is we don't want everything to go back up to the owners of the company. We want people that are actually doing the work to be able to make decisions and and make process improvements themselves. And I guess maybe this is a huge customer experience sort of improvement mechanism that we have. We we have a, a weekly sales all hands meeting where we talk about how many projects we're putting in, where we overview how they're going, and we give sales team feedback on how the project was priced, whether there were any customer expectations that we may have missed or hit. You know, and it's really important to talk about not only all the negatives, but all the positives. So if we have happy customers, talk about that a lot too. I like that. That's a cool forum that you have with your sales staff. Do you have any other forums that you run that, that are sort of in that same like culture of learning mode that relate to improving your customer experience? Yeah. I mean, there's another there's another one that we've implemented just actually this year that I would say has been really successful, which is we, we call it a, a cross-functional design and installation team training. And so every six weeks is, is the frequency of how, we, how often we do it. And we get our entire install team, which is at this point, it's about 15, 16 people. And then we get our designers uh, together and we have, we choose one leader to lead a topic. You know, it can, it can vary from something that the design team really knows well, like maybe the fire codes or some aspect of the National Electric Code, uh, or it could be something that the installation team knows really well, like how we run wires internally in walls and that sort of thing. And by cross-training, you know, we have our team members, you know, getting to know each other better and, and also just to, to really better understand what we need, to, what our guys do in the field every day and what our design team does too. And I think that translates to really just a better customer experience. You know, I think generally, if I can just sort of summarize where, this, what you know, the biggest change that I see in the solar industry occurring is just better planning and project preparation all before we go out and actually install the system. Mm. And so everyone's probably heard of these, you know, these one-day installs or 
in some cases, some of these bigger companies doing multiple installs in one day. All that is, or what goes into making that successful, is just a lot of planning, right? All the materials, all the design, the, the coordination on what needs to happen has all been done before. So that way we don't send a crew to a job and there still needs to be, you know, significant decisions that need to be made. Um, because anytime that happens, then construction halts. Mm-hmm. And um, they have to go start over again, and and that happens from time to time, d- despite the best planning. But the better we can anticipate that and plan, you know, the the more efficient our operation for sure. I want to jump to back to marketing really quick. You mentioned that you had a marketing person on staff for a while, but you no longer do. Given your seventy five percent referral rate, you've got a good website. But if if someone gave you the funds to fund a marketing position, what would you use the money for, or have the marketing person do? Well, I'd say for marketing, there's two basic things that we, that I think any company in this day and age needs to have. We need to have a decent web presence. I mean, almost everyone is finding service providers now on the web, whether it's um, on their computer, maybe less frequently, and now even more frequently right on their phone. So, you know, making sure that our website is, is optimized for mobile is extremely important. And then just just basic you know, sweatshirts and luminol branded um, clothing. Mm-hmm. And basic brochures and that sort of thing, and just keeping those fresh and up to date. That's the type of basic marketing that I, I think is sort of minimal. And, and we have it, but we don't always keep it up to date as much as I would like. Okay, so Luminol branded parachute pants. Got it. <laughs> exactly. MC <laughs> Hammer. Yeah. And actually, you know, this year we did uh, we did some Luminol branded rain gear for oh, our install. Nice. And um, it's been a huge hit. So it lets them, I mean, obviously there's times where it's not safe to be working out on the roof and we can't be making any penetrations, but mm-hmm. there's plenty of work that we can do when it's raining. And, you know, r- last year was rough. It was one of the rainiest years, you know, in history. And so, you know, having some some rain gear that's like bright and reflective and people can be proud to wear, um, that's been really great. So, yeah, and that, just asking, you know, the crew members and, and people in the office what kind of stuff they want. Mm-hmm. We've talked about a lot of the things that that we think uh, are related to customer experience, but in your opinion, what's the biggest thing a company can do to create the best customer experience possible? You know, it's an absolute focus on just on a really good customer experience, and it's reminding everyone on our team frequently that that's one of our core values. We want the experience of going solar to be positive for them. Um, it's a huge investment. It's something, you know, we're, we're going into their home, their personal space. And so we want to have, you know, all the steps along the way from the very beginning to the end. And, and you know, the one thing that is really important for all of our solar contractors to remember is most of us have, you know, a 10-year warranty. And so it's also a long-term relationship as well. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's done right. And so, you know, like I mentioned before, just picking up the phone, answering and, and uh, answering our customers' questions and listening to them, being responsive. And oftentimes with best intents as our team grows, unless we have some systems in place to help with that communication, it's pretty easy for those things to get dropped. And it's not that people don't want to do that, it's just that they don't have the answers to their questions. And so we need to have some tools and processes in place to allow people to to communicate effectively. Um, I'm just curious about that that part of the internal communication. How are you reminding staff, and how are you communicating consistently the expectation that the customer experience at Luminol needs to be high? Uh, well, it, it really starts from the top down, and maybe simultaneously the bottom up. And what I mean by that is we're just talking about it a lot, and so. 
We talk about it in our leadership meetings that we have weekly. We are reinforcing and encouraging it in, in our meetings among our other managers at the company. It's basically, it's just something that's talked about all the time. It's talked about in our sales meetings. Um, we have weekly installation team meetings where we, you know, we talk about safety and then we talk about various best practices and we talk about the customer experience there, I'd say almost every week, if not maybe every other week. And so just a lot of reinforcement. Okay. Yeah, that's good. Thanks. So August, if you could go back to that 2005-ish self that started working with Luminol and give that person some advice, what would it be? Well, I would say, you know, it's it's not going to be easy, but uh, it's going to be it's going to be really rewarding, and just stick with it. Yeah, I mean, that's what I've done. You know, I feel like the outlook is really positive right now, and there's been there's been rough patches and 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 and, and strong patches, but we just sort of keep showing up every day and keep doing the best we can and keep communicating. But I would just say to myself, you know, just be ready for, for quite a ride. It's not going to be easy, um, but it'll be very rewarding. All right. I, I have one more question, and I think this will probably be the last one. But thinking back to the to the launch of the company um, in 04 and you joined in 05, what were the expectations of Luminol back then? And have you achieved them? And what do you think about the future? Well, in one way, we have achieved our goals. We're the number one solar contractor in San Francisco just by sheer number of projects, uh, both total installed and then annually. And I think just having such a presence in the city here and realizing that we are in that position is great. And realizing that it's not easy. We're not going to, you know, keep that position by just resting on our laurels. And, you know, I think we all had some ideas that it would be easy to make a really successful business and grow it and maybe move on to some other opportunities. And, you know, now that you know, I'm doing this in year 11, coming up 12 here. I definitely realize that it's a, at least for the way we operate, it's a long-term commitment. It's not that I have to do this, but I, you know, I, I try to, we try to make it something that we enjoy doing every day and that we want to do. And it really, really helps when the core idea of solar and, and local business, it's something deep in our heart that we really want. Um, it really helps us to, to keep going every day. Okay, well, on that note, we're going to have to leave it. August Gers, thanks so much for chatting with us today, and have a great Thanksgiving holiday. You too. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Pam. Yeah, thanks, August. This was great. Thank you. Okay, take care. That's it for The Look Back. Thanks for listening, everybody. Please subscribe on iTunes and give us a rating while you're there. And check out Solar Review, Baywa's online magazine for solar contractors. Just Google Solar Review. That's review spelled R period E period view, Solar Review, and you'll find us. We've got feature-length articles on how to run efficient and healthy solar businesses, videos, podcasts, and more. See you next time.